Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. One of the most important developments and concepts that Friedrich Nietzsche is going to narrate and explore for us in his Genealogy of Morals, particularly in Essay 1, is what he calls the slave revolt in morality. And this is closely associated with another key idea, that of resentiment, and he says it flows out of this. There are a few things that we want to keep in mind before we jump in and look at precisely what he has to say about this. So slave morality or herd morality, however we want to talk about it, and Nietzsche has a very many ways of discussing this. Platonism for the masses, you know, is Christianity, right? Christianity is a form of this morality. He's not excluding many other modern things as well. Many of the men of science fit into this, depending on how they orient themselves. Even those who are focused on sort of an economic basis for things and viewing everything in terms of utility or what they can buy for it. If they are champions of capitalism, they may actually be part of slave morality just as much as socialists or those in favor of democracy. All these things Nietzsche sees as fitting into slave morality. Early on in the essay, he's not discussing it in any sort of expansive sense like that, because he's really, really interested in where this comes from. And we can say that at the beginning, there isn't any actually slave morality. A morality is something that's an achievement, something that develops. And so originally, there's a primary valuation, which Nietzsche sometimes calls master morality or the aristocratic noble way of understanding these things. And that's what's there. And then we have the emergence of the priest and a different kind of valuation. And then we have the common people who have been disvalued by this master morality. And then something new happens. We have the emergence or the explosion of the slave morality, this slave revolt, right? And they're not revolting just to change material circumstances. They're not revolting just to change being treated like equals or anything like that. What they're actually doing is changing the culture itself and in effect taking it over. So this is an important development according to Nietzsche. And what we really have here is the clash of two different kinds of moral valuation. The master morality is self-assertive. It views the masters as good. It values them as such. It makes a judgment about them and it disvalues the others, the commoners, as bad. Not as evil, but as bad, as weak. And with the priest, we have the pure versus the impure. We have a sort of clash with the aristocratic mode of valuation. But it's really with the common people that we find this developing in a way that can can do something. So he talks in chapter 10 about the slave revolt in morality as being something that brings something new into existence. And so he says the slave revolt in morality begins when resentiment itself becomes creative 
and gives birth to values, gives birth to new ways of valuing people, actions, institutions, all those sorts of things. And he tells us that the resentment of natures that are denied the true reaction, that of deeds, and compensate themselves with an imaginary revenge. Now, a little bit later on in that very chapter, he'll talk about how resentment isn't just something that the lower class has or the priests have. The nobles can have it, but it's a little bit different. He says, if it should appear in the nobleman, it consummates and exhausts itself in an immediate reaction, therefore does not poison. And so, so what we can say is that with, with the priest and with the common people, resentment poisons, and that's part of what makes it creative. Another really important aspect here, he tells us that the no is its creative deed, its refusal, its rejection of something. And so it's bringing something new into being, a new configuration, a new mindset by saying no, by negating something else, which makes it reactive according to, to Nietzsche. So what we have here is action as reaction. So as opposed to the nobles who just as the strong kind of instinctively engage with each other, fighting with each other, rivaling with each other, and then also turn towards the common people, you know, suppressing them, stealing things from them, raping, pillaging, whatever it's going to be, exploiting them. And then towards the external enemy, they show themselves as totally brutal. This is all, you know, sort of agency. In this case, it's just simply reaction on the part of those who are filled with resentment. He tells us that, here's the passage, this inversion of the value-positing eye, this need to direct one's view outward instead of back to oneself, is of the essence of resentment. In order to exist, slave morality first needs a hostile external world. It needs physiologically speaking, external stimuli in order to act at all. Its action is fundamentally reaction. So this is a very important note. What is the outward facing focus? It's toward a hostile world. This world is sucky. It's unfair. Why did things have to be this way? And towards the strong, the people who actually do things, who exert their force within that world. So the hostile world and the strong are really, in some respect, connected with each other. And slave morality focuses on that and then, then says, I'm not like that. Those are bad, actually, not just bad, but evil, and I am something different. So we can talk about persons that are filled with resentment. Nietzsche identifies the priest earlier in chapters leading up to this as a person of resentment, right? The priest turns inward and does so out of impotence. They don't come out well in physical confrontations with the warriors. But this is also something of the common people, especially as the common people gain some measure of control or power over parts of their life, which could still be capriciously taken away by the, the nobles intervening and, and doing things that they don't like. But there are these people of resentment, and then Nietzsche characterizes them in some very important ways. He tells us that while the noble person lives in trust and openness with themselves, the person of resentment, and notice all the negatives here that Nietzsche has, right? So it's not just that they bring negation, they are also negations of what it is to be noble. They're not upright, 
They're not naive. They think through their reactions. They have to consider things because otherwise the nobles may crush them, right? They're not honest or straightforward with themselves. They not only lie to the nobles, they lie to each other and they lie to themselves. Sometimes not totally lying, but partial lies where there's a bit of truth and a bit of lie mixed in together. And he says his soul squints, his spirit loves hiding places, secret paths and back doors. Everything covert entices him as his world, his security, his refreshment. He understands how to keep silent, how not to forget, how to wait, how to be provisionally self-deprecating and humble. And what he's talking about there is this concealment that has to take place. And this becomes part of their culture. It becomes part of their instinctual approaches. It becomes habitude. And then he goes a little bit further and he says, a race of such men of resentment is bound to become eventually cleverer than any noble race, right? Klugheit is the German. This cleverness, this being able to figure things out, and that's connected with concealment, as opposed to the openness and naivete of the, of the nobles. He says it will honor cleverness to a far greater degree as a condition of existence of the first importance. While with noblemen, cleverness can easily acquire a subtle flavor of luxury and subtlety, for here it is less essential, right? In the case of, of the person of Rizantamont, cleverness is really needed. And so this is uh, something really quite essential. Now he goes on and he talks about this, what he'll later identify as a transvaluation uh, taking place of values. And what's the contrast here? So originally we have the strong self-defining themselves as good. And in this case, the strong are valued now by the man of Rizantamont or the race of Rizantamont or the, you know, weird mixture of the priest and the commoner. The strong become the evil. The people who do bad things and do them because they're cruel. They do them because they're underdeveloped. They do them because they have evil within their hearts. Now, then the weak, the people of Rizantamont, can redefine themselves as well. They were viewed as bad by the nobles, by the noble form of morality. Now they can call themselves good. But notice that there's a really fundamental distinction here. The strong self-defined themselves as good. They defined good first, and then they defined that as against the bad. So the opposition is first, I define myself, then I define you scum over there. In the case of the weak, the common people, first they define what's evil, and then they negatively define what's good as not being evil. When Nietzsche, by the way, talks about going beyond good and evil, this is what he's rejecting. He's not rejecting good versus bad. He's rejecting good versus evil. And so there's this entire transformation or transvaluation, we can call it, that is taking place. There's a very important set of passages in chapter 14 where he talks about the secret of how ideals are made on earth. Let's take a look at it, he says, and what do we find? So he says, I see nothing, but I hear all the more. There's a soft, weary, malignant muttering and whispering coming from all corners and nooks. It seems to me one is lying. 
Weakness is being lied into something meritorious. No doubt of it. It is just as you said. An impotence which does not requite into goodness of heart, anxious lowliness into humility, subjection to those one hates into obedience, that is, to one of whom they say he commands this subjection, they call him God. The inoffensiveness of the weak man, even the cowardice of which he has so much, is lingering at the door. All of these things acquire flattering names like patience and are called virtue itself. So the, the traits of the common person, the fawning, you know, unable to, to defend himself or to assert himself person are being turned into positive character traits. It's no longer just a generic sense of goodness. These ideals that he's talking about are quite important. And now he talks about a very important one. His inability for revenge is called unwillingness to revenge, perhaps even forgiveness. They also speak of loving one's enemies. So the person who can't actually retaliate, who can't reimpose some sort of measure or order or relation with the other person, who has to suck it up and take it, says, oh, I could go after the other person. I choose not to because I'm the better person. I'm a good person by doing that. So unwillingness is what impotence looks like. He goes on and he says, they're miserable, all these mutterers and nook counterfeiters, though they crouch warmly together, but they tell me their misery is a sign of being chosen by God. One beats the dogs one likes best. Perhaps this misery is also a preparation, a testing, a schooling. Perhaps it's more something that will one day be made good and recompensed with interest, with huge payments of gold. No, of happiness. They call this bliss. So misery gets transformed into being chosen, gets transformed into its opposite of misery, happiness, beatitude, right? Again, there's a lying going on here, according to Nietzsche. Then there's a, another important thing. He says, Now they give me to understand they're not merely better than the mighty, the lords of the earth, whose spittle they have to lick. They are not merely better, but also better off, or at least will be better off someday. But then there's something else. And Nietzsche says, no, wait a minute. You've said nothing of the masterpiece of these black magicians who make whiteness, milk, and innocence of every blackness. Haven't you noticed their perfection of refinement, their boldest, most artistic stroke? What is it? What do they do with revengefulness and hatred? What have they done with these things? They don't talk about revenge and hatred anymore. They talk instead about justice. He says, we good men, we are the just. What they desire, they call not retaliation, but the triumph of justice. What they hate is not their enemy. No, they hate injustice. They hate godlessness. What they believe in and hope for is not the hope of revenge, the intoxication of sweet revenge, but the victory of God, the just God over the godless. What there is left for them to love on earth is not their brothers in hatred, but their brothers in love. And so Nietzsche is saying these people, and we don't have to necessarily have all the God talk in there. We can have sort of a secular version of this, but people who are saying, oh, no, 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 I don't, I'm not motivated by a desire for revenge. I don't have hatred towards anybody. Nietzsche says, that's BS. You really do. You just like to call it justice and you lie to yourself about it. It's all being motivated by resentment. So this gives us some idea about what's going on with this transformation, this transvaluation, this slave revolt in morality, how it embodies resentment, it acts as a vehicle for it. And in the process, you could say, develops it fuller, maybe to its fullest extent. And that becomes the motivating factor in this type of morality, according to Nietzsche. 
Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works.